This episode of the Ask the Masters podcast is being brought to you by Pentair. Welcome to the 30th episode of the Ask the Masters podcast. On this episode, Master Paula Benedetti and Master Rick Chafee discuss architecturally integrated water elements and complex swimming pool construction. Enjoy this very informative episode. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Masters podcast. This podcast is dedicated to discussions about the design and construction of water shapes. The hosts of the show are all certified SWD masters who represent the leading builders and designers within the water shaping industry today. Good morning. Welcome to Ask the Masters. I am Rick Chafee with Red Rock Contractors, and I'm here with Paula Benedetti with Aquatic Technology. Good morning, Paula. Good morning, Rick. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, I think we're going to talk about architecturally integrated structures. And water features in general, right? Water features in general that are integrated with the architecture and and the various uh, issues that... uh, people have experienced over the years and and how to plan and prevent those problems. So both of us have done projects over the years and many of the Genesis guys, that's kind of one of some of our specialty, I think, is how we're able to integrate um, a, a water feature, both just not, just stylistically into the architecture, but also actually physically integrated into the architecture. And is that what we're talking about today? That's what we're going to talk about today is, is some of those construction obstacles, uh, not only during the execution, but things you need to think about during the planning phases. What do, you, what do you see as the most critical piece of, of that architecturally integrated piece? What's the most critical thing you need to worry about? Waterproofing. And I, I, I use this analogy a lot when I'm in design meetings. I say the W is not only for waterproofing, but there's three phases of the waterproofing. So we've got the integral waterproofing in our concrete. We've got some type of membrane system on the inside. And then we have some type of mechanical system for the penetrations. Okay. And then we also need to worry about the migration of water, right? So regardless of whether we waterproof something and keep it from getting into the structure, it tends to want to migrate around and through and over quite a bit. Yeah, what we find is that water will tend to want to find uh, our conduits and our pipes that are exterior to the structure from other sources, whether it's from drainage pipes, condensation, irrigation, and will tend to want to follow the perimeter of those pipes along their course. And so the water might not even be related to the pool, but they're coming from external sources and they're being drawn into the structure from these, um, these devices and pipes that, that leave our structure. Yeah, we've, we've found that to be true as well. And on a specific project, we exactly had that problem. We had gas lines that were, were sleeved into our same, same area to work and we ended up having water that was coming off a roof deck getting into the gas line sleeving and showing up as if we had a pool leak. Um, luckily it only happened when it rained, so we, we could easily prove that it was not a continuous pool issue, but I think critical to the process of, of the construction side of that is to be very acute, to pay attention to what else is around you, what other physical things are around you, irrigation-wise, water-wise, to make sure that you can file, you know, se- separate those two or at least know what you might be running into and help others on the project know that they've got to stay and, and waterproof around or keep it out of your structure. But What's, what's the easiest way to try to prove when you do find water that it's, that it's not maybe, or that it is maybe coming from the structure of I'm the gl- feature? I'm glad you just touched on that because uh, there was recently an issue uh, that was posted on uh, Ask the Masters on Facebook about uh, trying to determine whether it was irrigation water, a pool leak, or condensation. And one of the few things that uh, is unique to, to swimming pool water is the presence of cyanuric acid okay. and that it will migrate through concrete. So... Uh, if in fact you can raise the cyanuric levels uh, in the vessel and then test the water, the, the leak water, uh, for the presence of cyanuric acid, that'll tell you whether it actually is leak water coming through or whether it's from some external source, whether it's uh, condensation or, or irrigation or 
a leaky yeah. rooftop drain. That's a cool little trick. You wouldn't think that you'd be able to do that because obviously some some tap water will have chlorine in it, and a lot of other minerals are tough, and, and the chlorine level would be so low, it'd be tough to even acknowledge probably. Exactly. Um, whether it came from the pool or the tap water source. And, and I learned I learned this trick kind of uh, uh, actually on one of the expert witness cases I was doing. The uh, the pool was leaking. Uh, landscape contractors were digging a hole f- nearby the pool for uh, putting a tree, and every time. You know, they'd dig the hole, it would just fill full of water, they'd pump it out, it'd fill. The landscape contractors were telling the pool contractor he had a leak, they were arguing with each other, and, and they, were te- they tested the water, and they said, well, it's got a little chlorine in it, the tap water does too. Um, and I said, well, what else is in pool water? And I thought, well, if it's leaking, it's going to be cyanuric. Um, so they tested it, and there was about 20 parts per million of cyanuric, and the pool contractor said, you got a leak. Yep. What's funny is I think the important thing, too, when we get to the soil areas like a tree, um, depending on the soil types, you can end up with very transient water. And so you can have a water source that can be hundreds of yards away, and and especially on hillsides and slopes, but even on flat grades. If you've got clay layers and different layers of soil, you can have water that is migrating drastically farther than you would ever expect it to and have it be the same source. And that would be a way to prove as well you could be you know, 30 yards away from a body of water that's, that you built and, and find out you got cyanuric acid and it absolutely could be coming from your shell. So right. um, it's definitely a, an issue. It's kind of the only way that you can really put a tag in the water, like a like a radioactive isotope that you can actually track. Right. There's no other real chemical you can put in the water that you can track and actually uh, go back to the source. But that, you kind of mentioned something about uh, water migration. And, you know, that's probably one of the hardest things in our industry um, to troubleshoot is the source of a leak, whether it's a, a vanishing edge wall, uh, whether it's a, a leak exterior to the structure. If, if water is migrating through the structure, it'll follow a pipe, it'll follow a fissure, it'll follow the, the honeycomb or the trowel marks behind tile for a very long distance till it finally hits a blockade where then it has to come to the surface. And that'll either manifest itself as um, efflorescence or, or just a visual leak or dampness. Uh, and sometimes it's coming out not always in the best places. Right. Well, I think that leads to the, like you brought up, I think the, I always say there's three critical things about architecturally integrated structures, and it's actually waterproofing on all three. There's layers of waterproofing, but um, because it's so hard to find a minor leak like that, you have to make sure that you don't end up with a minor leak, um, mostly because you could spend, you know, if you've got a, we did a rooftop pool with all glass tile, if we end up with a small leak in there, man, we could be just de- de- destructing the entire pool by the time we actually find the leak and, and you can go back and forth so many times. And so that's why, as you brought up, there's multiple layers to the waterproofing system so that we protect ourselves from having any chance of a leak because every one of those could have a minor issue. But if we layer waterproofing um, systems, not just you know two different layers of uh, um, elastomeric or something, but if we layer the process through the entire construction, integral waterproofing systems, surface waterproofing systems, you know any 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 manner and then and then if we can get a primary waterproofing layer that we put in before we even construct the vessel those will all start to take effect so that we we can have a little bit of take away some of the risk of the fact that we might have a leak and then we're not chasing something that's extremely difficult to locate the the um, compatibility of those various systems is is probably i think the the biggest bane of a designer or a contractor is trying to find um, integral waterproofers that are compatible with membrane systems that are compatible. I mean, mechanical systems aren't so much of a big deal because they're usually, it's a mechanical component. Right. But uh, trying to find systems that, that are compatible with each other, 
Um, I have a project we're doing now where we've got interval waterproofing in a, in a cast shell. Um, the profile is very smooth because they use steel forms. And then we tried to put a cementitious waterproofer on it that stuck in some areas and didn't in others. And then we were kind of backtracking, trying to figure out why it was peeling. And we ascertained through uh, spectrographic analysis that somebody had put a political um, silicate sealer on top of that concrete. So it made the surface so bloody dense that we couldn't even get a mechanical bond. Right. So we had to go back and literally grind it. Uh, reprofile and, it. Reprofile it and get a good bite so the, the cementitious waterproofer would bond. Well, I think that, you know, the, the systems approach is what's important. And there's, there's now, luckily, there's a number of different manufacturers that have started to kind of give us a soup to nuts product too. So we have all the pieces that we know are compatible because there's, it's very tough to get three different manufacturers to agree that we can put their product on top of somebody else's that has something inside of it. So as a contractor and as a, as a specifier, it's important to try to find a systems approach from whatever manufacturer you're working with and also make sure you're following the, re the requirements because they're all slightly different. Um, multiple, multiple different companies have um, cementitious waterproofing. Multiple other contractors have um, colloidal silicate but they don't always have a system you can work with. So the, it's really important now, if, if you can, to work through some manufacturer's entire system and then follow that product. And so the ones that have a full system also have methods for pipe penetrations and details for that stuff. And most people don't realize that there is good specific details on how you can waterproof around penetrations and how you can deal with corners and, and intersections and different profiles. So when you get into that type of project, it's really important to, to, to pay a lot of attention to that. And oftentimes, you can just hire a waterproofing consultant. Um, either the manufacturer will provide you one, or you can hire consultants that that's all they do. And they'll be specific to it. They'll warranty it for you. Because we've got a commercial waterproofing um, project we're working on right now, and it requires a 10-year warranty. Well, if, you, if we just went with some simple surface waterproofing system that seems to be working for us, we probably wouldn't be able to maintain a 10-year warranty. And, if we didn't work around the pipes and everything correctly, we certainly wouldn't be able to give them that kind of warranty. So we've hired a consulting firm and a manufacturer to work with together to actually install that system. So you've kind of touched on one of the very first key elements of, of putting together an integrated structure is the planning phase. So it's not only before you start construction, starting to determine what are the processes we're going to use and what products are we going to use, but actually determining and detailing the corners, the inside corners, the outside corners, the drains, the pitches, the mechanical systems, how all these systems are going to interface with each other, and then getting the manufacturers on the same page. Right. I find that the disconnect is between the integral waterproofing manufacturers and then the surface waterproofers. And that's where we still kind of have a disconnect because those manufacturers haven't really got together yet. And right. Yeah, and you, you, you definitely can work and find the ones that do work, and, and you need to be planned well ahead. And, and it, especially, we, we talked about this earlier in a different podcast, and the fact that, I, I think you said, it, as the closer the pool gets to the actual architecture, the more important elevations, dimensions, everything starts to get much more important. When we're 30 feet from a house, if we're an inch or two high, or the pool's a couple inches bigger than the plan really shows, nobody picks up on that. When we start bringing that structure either underneath the architecture or attached to the architecture, now our elevations are critical. We can't, oh, we're an inch too high. Well, now we've ruined the drainage plan for the entire back patio or the rooftop deck or whatever we're working on. So pre-planning and working together with the architectural firm that's involved is, is critical. And I always, I, we, we talked about this earlier too, is I think the best time to bring the, the, you know, the pool designer in when you've got a proper pool designer is before the project maybe is even on the board so that you know what you have for a resource and then you know when you can engage them. 
I think most architects are afraid to engage, are afraid to engage or don't know who they could engage at all, and so it also often gets left to the very end of a project where it might even be under construction, and now they've engaged a pool builder, but they still haven't actually engaged a pool designer, and and that'll especially architecturally integrated projects that'll really hinder the the the, the end result often if they haven't brought that person in soon enough. Here's a quick word from Pinter. So talk a little bit about um, the IntelliCenter and, you know, we're coming off of IntelliTouch. That was kind of the big granddaddy uh, sure. that you guys had. Uh, but now with the IntelliCenter, uh, we're not having to buy all of these extra boxes and everything. Everything sure. is based right on the board right there. We can control uh, eight, 16 um, variable speed pumps. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it, the, the capability expansion with this new IntelliCenter is, is light years. So, so a couple of the biggest advantages is, you touched on earlier, is the touch screen at the equipment pad. For years and years, if it was an IntelliTouch system, you had to have what we call a serviceman panel. If the homeowner, if the house was locked and you couldn't get into the homeowner's touch panel inside their house, you, you couldn't change any programming if you didn't have the screen logic. You couldn't change speeds on the pump. You couldn't do anything from the pad. Um, so the IntelliCenter allows you to do that. The IntelliCenter also... Um, gives you the ability, if you sell a job today on a new construction application and the homeowner only needs four auxiliaries and maybe they, they initially decide they just want a single body, they want a pool or they want a spa, and you start, you, you go by the, the electrical panel or the box and you hang it on the wall and as the job progresses, the homeowner decides, I want to turn on the barbecue lights. I want to turn on an extra fountain that I'm going to put in the backyard. You were limited to the number of auxiliaries that were in this box. The IntelliCenter has what we call edge technology that it gives you the ability to open up the panel and slide a, another a PC card on the end of the, uh, the brains of the IntelliCenter that expands it from a, from a four auxiliary to, seven, to eight auxiliaries by sliding this card on there. So you don't have to take a whole panel off the wall, replace the guts. That's, that's a pretty huge benefit. Another benefit is every IntelliCenter has the software built into it to control it from an app. Um, in the past, you would buy an IntelliTouch system or an EasyTouch system, and then if the consumer wanted it or if the builder wanted to put it in for ease of maintenance or, or service, they would add a screen logic to that. The IntelliCenter app is built into the IntelliCenter platform, so it comes built into the system. So it has the ability to add on, where in the past we haven't had that ability without changing the heart of the system or a PC board or a motherboard. Tom and I were out <laughs> on a job uh, a number of years ago uh, before the IntelliCenter was out yet, yeah. uh, and we had a pool spa combo and then another spa and another uh, right. another body of water. And so we had multiple heaters, um, and really we were a bit hamstrung, and we had to, we had to get creative Work with how we I did that. Yeah. But that capability now with the IntelliCenter, it yeah. just opens all of that up. So, so if you look at the automation that we make, we make an easy touch platform that, that'll do two variable speed pumps. And then we go to the IntelliTouch that has had the ability to do eight variable speed pumps or a combination of. The IntelliCenter platform gives you the ability to do 16 variable speed pumps. And, and on jobs like that, sometimes in the past we've made decisions that aren't the best decision for the consumer, but we, we've had to put single speed pumps in maybe where we didn't want to on a water feature to have the ability to, to dial it in exactly how the consumer wants it or what the feature needs for the water demand because we were limited on how many variable speed pumps we could put on there. Um, we, we've, we think we've overcome that now with having the ability to do 16. 
and, and, and multiple and heaters and multiple heaters. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was always, you know, you had the, the I 10 D that could have multiple heaters, but you, that was two single bodies. You Correct. couldn't have a combo and that. And so, uh, that's what I'm really excited about. You, to, you had to do creative programming. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, what do you see as the future of uh, IntelliCenter and, and where you guys, uh, where will this technology be in five years? Uh, can you talk about it? Well, so that's, I mean, it's a little bit of a loaded question. I mean, as a manufacturer, we think we know what the future is going to hold, sure. um, but none of us have a crystal ball. And that's the beautiful thing about the, 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 the software on the IntelliCenter and the processor, the microprocessors on there is that we don't know what the industry wants. We don't know what the consumer wants. Um, and the consumers inevitably are going to dictate what the future is. With the IntelliCenter, because we could up update it just like an app, if, if in three months from now there's new technology for pool pumps or for pool heaters, um, there's parts of the country where they're talking about not being able to have gas heaters anymore. What does that mean for heat pumps? What does that mean for electric heaters, um, all electric heaters? You know, um, And we don't know what that is today, so the future could be all of that. So as a manufacturer, do we focus all of our energy on all of that? Or do we kind of, with the IntelliCenter now, we don't have to. We could, we could narrow that in because we could, we could turn on a dime now, where before we didn't have the ability to do that. Correct. That's really, really cool. So this is going to be the platform uh, that everybody needs to move towards sure. in the future. Sure. We don't want, as a manufacturer, t to dictate to the industry what they need to put in. We want to have kind of a good, better, best today. And, and, and that comfort level is different for everybody in our industry. And that's, that's our job is to make sure that we're accessible to help them embrace the technology if they want to embrace it, but still have a product that works for them if they're not ready to, to kind of take that, uh, take that next step. The, the, the other benefit of bringing in uh, a designer or somebody early on in the design process is that we bring a lot of knowledge and past experience from other projects uh, to the table where we can often, we can help them oftentimes minimize their construction costs because we can streamline their process, but sometimes we can also um, diminish the size of the structure. Sometimes they're, we're finding that they're over-designing the structures for the pool or their secondary containment. They're really going overboard because they're so concerned about the pool leaking that we can actually help them develop these processes to kind of stream on their pool and minimize the, the weight and size of their structures. Yeah, we've found often too that architects are, are usually afraid to use our structure for their foundation and, and the re end result is we end up with these big bulky foundations that we're then trying to work a, a water feature or a swimming pool around when the reality is we, at, because of the, the geometry of what we're building, we're an excellent foundation system because we're a huge spread foundation typically or we're going to set it even on piers depending on the project. So um, you can really tighten up all the tolerances of what, what a project looks like. You want to get you know the inside outdoors all tied together and you want the architecture to sit on, look as though it's sitting on top of the water. Well, there's no reason we can't actually sit it on top of the water. And sometimes that makes it both visually better but also allows us to plan ahead and, and miss some of the problems. And, and like you said, the experience out there, a lot of times that experience is because of bad experience, right? We've, we've tried it, didn't work, or we found an issue with it, but we found a way around it. Um, and a lot of it comes down to flashing details and, and, and uh, items like that where we don't necessarily stop our structure where, where you think you would. Maybe we run the structure higher and then we bring architecture back down and we can eliminate all the, a lot of those issues and help the architects through that process. So um, let's talk a little bit about um, 
maybe some of the different uh, waterproofing systems that we use from the integral waterproofers um, to uh, some of the, the surface systems that are used out there and maybe some discuss briefly some not brand specific but right. just some of the mechanical systems also so in so internal waterproofing there's a number of different manufacturers that make a lot of different types of that um, they're all fairly similar some of them you have to be careful because some of them also will reduce the curing times and the setup times on concrete so you definitely want to make sure that whether you're casting or shooting, that the crew is fairly well versed with the Some product. will extend the setting or, times or, or extend it, yeah. I've, so, I've been crew matting around for days waiting oh, yeah. for stuff to set up so they can finish. Um, and it's going to come through the hose different. It's going to it's going to hit the wall differently. So there's a little bit. It, it adds total a, a different uh, dimension to the construction piece of it for sure. And it's considerably expensive. I mean, you can spend fifty to hundred dollars a yard for integral waterproofing. Now, I first got introduced to that when we were doing a a long linear water feature that was going to be left as cast. We actually cast the concrete but had no finishes going on. So we weren't going to have the ability to put a membrane or a tile finish or anything in, or repair um, cracks that we would find. And so we did quite a bit of research to find, you know, some of the best integral waterproofing systems. And I didn't have a ton of faith in them. I made sure that the owner knew that at some point we might have to come in and put a finish on the inside of the feature because it was so long and linear. It's bound to crack it was all concrete and so surely it did um just where we thought it would there was some steps in the in the in the wall and it cracked right on those steps and initially we had water leakage we had seepage and damp on the outside reached out to the manufacturer they said you know what we're, we're, we'll stand behind it either way how big's the crack and it was you know it was visually bigger than i was hoping it was, it was, it was, a, shrink, it was, it was a shrinkage crack. it was though. a shrinkage crack and, and nothing you know no, nothing structural but it was big enough you could get a you know you could get a business card in it on the outside and so um, there wasn't much moisture coming through, but he said, give it 24 hours and then call me back. And sure enough, 24 hours later, the moisture had gotten smaller and th 48 hours later, gone. Um, so the, the really cool thing about the internal waterproofing systems, they densify the concrete more, which is great for strength and, and, and absorption rates and stuff, but they also are always in the concrete sleeping. So at any point in time, if we get a shrinkage crack or even some minor movement cracks, when the water enters in there, it gets in, it gets, gets in with that, that waterproofing and actually fills the void. Um, and so it can actually self-repair itself. So I think the phrase is it's, it's hydroscopic, hydroscopic meaning it's, right. it's, it's activated by water. So uh, basically it's lying dormant, kind of like a, like a sleeper cell, and then they get activated whenever the, the invaders come in. Absolutely. The water. And so, so over time they can still protect your project, and, and they're a huge benefit, and they're, you know, it's a fairly simple process to use, very effective. Um, it's, but if you didn't plan for it or budget for it, it could be extremely expensive so um, but it's the first layer that we like to get involved with and, and like I said there's a number of manufacturers they all have different benefits and, and, and additions to them but definitely work with your manufacturer and then next to that we're going to get to topical systems so talk to me about well, some topical well, systems. Well you know as I'm going to back up about the the integral system so in my company when when I know that a client is going to be doing an all tile vessel even in the ground I specify integral waterproofers because I can't deal with most of the internal membrane systems, which we're going to talk about next, can't deal with negative side water pressure. Right. And especially for shooting a pool against soil, I can't get a membrane on the backside of that to stop water from migrating through the structure and possibly delaminating my tile, right. uh, which is a very common source of failure. Uh, guys don't get a very tight shell, and they get a little water migration through the shell. Next thing you know, the membrane is delaminating because of water behind it. So um, I always tell clients, look, explain to them why. We're going to have a little bit extra cost on our shotcrete or our cat's concrete so that we can stop that negative side right. uh, water. So just something to 
to throw out there for our listeners who might be thinking about doing all tile vessels and how do you deal with that negative side water pressure. Um, so the next one, the membrane systems, um, and as we kind of touched on, a lot of them can't handle negative side water pressure. That means water that might come in from behind the membrane. Correct. Um, so yeah, the amount of vapor pressure that comes up comes from that negative side pressure is, is pretty dramatic. So even high strength epoxies and, and unbelievably expensive um, finishing systems and waterproofing systems, they they have almost no ability to manage that kind of a, um, pressure from behind, and it will just do exactly that. It starts to bubble it off. So um, they're they're important to protect it prior to this piece, but then this piece comes next. So the uh, the the I actually use a multiple layer effect on the inside of of my vessels is the very next thing that I use is, will be a, a, a modified cementitious membrane on the inside. Um, and um, that is usually applied directly to the shotcrete shell or the cast in place shell. And then if we're gonna be tiling, um, we'll put our mortar bed on top of that and then whatever the, the uh, tile system, uh, fracture elastomeric membrane. fracture yeah. membrane, inside of that. So I've got three layers for my integral, my modified cementitious under my mortar bed, and then my waterproof crack control membrane out underneath the tile. Um, but those modified cementitious you can use directly under plaster, I understand. Yes, many of you can. So the, the good thing about cementitious is it works through the plaster products too, and so you can actually lay them in. They, they, they have two advantages. They usually have a reasonable texture to them, so they, we can actually get mechanical um, connection to our to our plasters and key it into that as well as we we naturally can bond because it's cementitious so um, they're highly they got a lot of polymers in them too so they've got a lot of cure time so we got to make sure you get your curing times correct make sure you don't waterproof day one and plaster day two um, and each one's a little bit different but you absolutely can use that same system and plaster right on top of it so it's a benefit to some of the membrane systems that you put on you you actually have to come on top of them with something else usually to plaster and so that can be difficult if you're trying to just waterline tile and you'll end up having to waterproof the entire shell, and then you gotta come in on top of that with something else if you're only using a membrane. This episode of the Ask the Bastards podcast is being brought to you by Pentair. So I'm gonna back up just a little bit. So before we put that modified cementitious membrane on the inside, we would be doing the mechanical seals around the pipe penetrations. Um, typically, most contractors are using uh, plastic plaster seals, mm -hmm. which are gluing on the pipes and setting back in the wall. Um, and then sealing around that with some type of um, either hydraulic cement or non-shrink grout. So one of the benefits of the, of the uh, modified cementitious uh, layer on the inside is that because we've got a shotcrete shell that's meeting um, this, the hydroscopic cement around the mechanical seal, we have the potential of having um, a different hydration rate, especially if we're going to plaster a pool. Sure. So sometimes we can actually see that shadowing around the pipe penetration. So by doing lining the whole side of the pool with the uh, modified cementitious, we now have even hydration across the entire surface. Right. So to keep you from having some of those weird shadowing effects in some of the plaster around big drains and, and larger pipe fittings. Exactly. So there's a there's a key benefit with that. But um, I've also seen builders come in and just put the modified cementitious around the drain fittings. And they've created even a larger problem because, again, they're getting a differential hydration between the shotcrete and where they've got the membrane. And by hydration, what you're saying is that where we don't have a membrane, water is getting sucked into the structure more than it would be where we have a membrane or vice versa. And so that's causing the plaster to change as it cures. It cures in different ways because some of it has more moisture than others. 
that it's critical to keep your shell damp while you're plastering, obviously, but even though you're keeping it surface saturated dry, you're not going to, it's still going to suck some of that moisture from the plaster. And so that's the difference in hydration you're Correct. talking about. And so we see that a lot on, on projects where, uh, because of the differential materials, where you've got patches around pipes, you've got um, benches, even densities in the shotcrete change between a, a bench and steps and the floor. Um, you know, a lot of guys don't realize that a lot of that is just hydration related because the shotcrete might be more porous in other areas and it's sucking the moisture out of their plaster. Absolutely. Let's talk to some of the, the, uh, the odd type of water issues we have with architecturally integrated structures. What, what like condensation, for instance, what, would, what, what could we have done that we'd run into a problem where we think we have a leak, but we actually have a condensation problem? Well, you know, the, the problem there is, is it's the differential temperatures. And so we've got temperatures of the water in the vessel and the air temperature of the room or the adjoining space next to it. Um, that's where you really should have had uh, some type of uh, environmental uh, or mechanical engineer involved uh, dealing with those issues. Uh, sometimes you can put drainage mats or some other type of systems around the outside of the vessel to contain that moisture and, and redirect it. But if you're against a living space or, um, you know, that's, that's when really the, the mechanical contractor needs to get involved and deal with, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to drain that water that might be accumulating inside the walls? Well, drain it and get get it or get enough air movement beyond it so that we don't get that happening. So what, what we end up happening is we've got a, a structure full of water that might be 60 degrees. And then we've got another. So that's causing the shell of the structure to be cooler than maybe other parts of the house. And then we have a high humidity situation and warmer weather. So that moisture is actually condensing against the structure that we've built. And now we have moisture moving, either migrating. And if there's enough of it, it can start causing damage. Or just naturally being wet too long, we get mold and mildew problems. So, it, and Which is a real big deal because getting black mold. I did an expert witness case years ago uh, in New York that had black mold in the walls. And it actually is treated as a hazmat site. Um, the whole house gets sealed. And the guys come in like... You know, space, space suits, suits yep. and it's like they're dealing with asbestos and it's, uh, it's a real bad scene and now you're explaining to your neighbors no nothing's really wrong it's no big deal <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> really yeah. and we're selling the house next week <laughs> yeah. so yeah absolutely so and that that also comes into play especially we start putting um, aquatic structures inside buildings right once we start putting indoor pools and, and building anatoriums and even maybe just so what seems simple we're going to put a spa inside somebody's house that's going to be warm all the time and heating all the time well, now we've got to deal with a whole other group of environmental issues that, that aren't as simple as they might seem. I'm working on another case right now uh, where, again, getting, getting somebody who's done indoor structures and indoor vessels uh, and has a history in doing them and knows all the problems that are related, everybody tries to, I want to say they want to cheapen out. Everybody wants to try and avoid the expenses of installing a dehumidification system. Right. And they all think that, well, I'm going to put fans in, and I'm going to put sliding windows, and I'm going to put skylights, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. They all think it's that they're going to reinvent the wheel. And believe me, there have been millions and millions of dollars of lawsuits all around the harebrained ideas trying to avoid the expense of buying a proper dehumidification system. Well, and even the construction method, we're, we're designing a big project now that's an anatorium for a client, and we've actually enlisted Ruddy, one of our other masters, because he's that's what he does, Omega Structures, builds and, and does a lot of swimming pools inside structures, and there's all these weird nuances you don't even think of, and um, simplest, simple things of how much air we're moving, especially when we have glass. You know, we, we're in a, where we're building this is actually in New Mexico, so we've got a, a very cold climate exterior. Well, if we've got 80-degree warm water inside of a building and we've got 40-degree, 20-degree, 15-degree exterior temperatures, 
the amount of air movement and air changes and dehumidification that are required. Um, and we can't just dehumidify it. We got to, when we talk about condensation, when you've got windows that are in 20 degree weather outside, water will condense on them 24 seven and mm -hmm. literally rain in the building and destroy all of the building. And so you actually have to change the entire construction method of the inside of the structure. And when you start locating windows, sometimes you can't locate them where you want to because you can't get enough air to them and, and keep the air running on them to keep that from happening. And so there's quite a bit of really, you know, um, long learning techniques over time of how to do that right. And it's certainly not the type of project you want to like do a little bit of research online and decide how you're going to build your structure. You need to enlist. Even us, we've done a couple of indoor pools already. We still pay for a consultant to come in and look at our designs and, and even simple stuff. This one actually has a basement that's going to be a wine cellar. He said, we'll have to seal it off completely. And I'm like, well, why? He goes, because the moisture will fall down to that room and you'll never get it out. He so, goes, you have so to close the I'm glad you touched on the moisture migration because that's something that a lot of people don't think about. So um, as a swimming pool contractor, the consultants, they're often just they're very myopic and just think that their scope of work ends at the walls of the natatorium or the indoor pool. And really, you need to think about the whole building envelope because uh, as soon as you add that water component, now we're talking about negative and positive air pressures also. Yep. And we have to keep the air pressure outside the pool building greater than the air pressure inside the building so that we're not driving water vapor out into the structure of the house or into the wine cellar in the basement or into the, the wall cavities. Right, in through an electrical outlet or, you know, you, all these, you almost have to hermetically seal these buildings so that that does not occur. It's almost like doing a clean room. Yeah, It's absolutely. like doing a clean room. So there's literally an entire vapor system. It's like the whole inside of the room is being wrapped with a water barrier. And you're right, the light switches, the outlets, the light fixtures, the can lights, everything, because uh, you know, we've de deconstructed some walls before and found all the electrical wiring corroded. We found, you know, the steel studs inside corroded. Yeah, the moisture, the chemicals, they do highly destructive to most indoor building structures. And so you've got to actually invert the whole construction process. You're actually building the inside as if it's outside now because we need to be able to manage moving water, rain and moisture, but also just the migration push and, and water migrates unbelievably very well through a lot of different areas, especially once it's in a vapor form in the air. And so you also have to separate parts of the structures because it's the swimming pool room itself is a fairly uncomfortable environment. You know, it's too humid. Um, and if you don't keep it cool enough, then it, then it will be very uncomfortable. But if you try to keep it cool, then you have a major problem keeping the pool warm and having, and not having so much evaporation. So there's kind of a little science to that. And then you have to separate building areas and living areas from all those spaces. But it's, it's way more complex than it is just to think, well, we're going to build a little spa in this house and we're going to put a spa and a hot tub and a cold plunge inside the bathroom area. And I'm going to put a skylight in to vent it and we're done. Correct. Correct. Yep. So there's a lot more to that. So we, we've, we've got some experts in our group that can help us navigate that as well. And, and the, the cost of solving that problem after the fact is unbelievably expensive. And, you, and like you said, it can do a massive amount of damage before, before you know you have damage. It's typically a teardown at that point. You're, yeah. you're getting to the bare studs. And yeah. sometimes even the stud, the structures of the building has to come down and be reconstructed. You know, something that, you, that um, a lot of people aren't aware of is that you, oftentimes you can't even bring in a regular HVAC contractor to install those because it often involves ductwork that they've never worked with before. And they're not using stainless steel or galvanized ductwork. They're actually using PVC and plastic ductwork that's corrosion resistant. Right. Yeah, and if you yeah, if they're not experienced with that product at all. And the other I've seen on the project we worked on, they also had a, a, a system that was running air through a bunch of different rooms. So the return airs were coming from the spa area and the main part of the house. And then we were actually dispersing 
the air throughout the whole house. So now we had humidity problems everywhere. They were and chloramines. And chloramines. Um, as well as if one, if we got into a condition where that room was full of mold one day, then we'd be spreading the mold around the house. So um, it's it's really critical to make sure that's understood. And it's not you, you're not going to build one of those facilities on the cheap. If you do, it's going to cost you a fortune later. It's that simple. And so it's really just like many things in this world, it's worth paying up front for a little bit of insurance and understanding that it is to try to solve the problems later. This episode of the Ask the Bastards podcast is being brought to you by Pentair. What's what's the toughest architecturally integrated project you've actually had to work on? What's what's the one that made it, what had some of the de- most difficult details that you dealt with? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I designed one a number of years ago, and it was actually kind of interesting because I designed the project. It was actually going to be a spec home. And a celebrity ended up buying the home. And through kind of roundabout, you know, we're all in this little small society together. Yep. Uh, the, the guy who was servicing the pool said, you know, the architecture of this pool kind of looks like Benedetti did it. Let me reach out to him. And he sent me a picture. I said, you know, it kind of looks familiar, but I didn't build it. And he sent me the address and I looked it up on my computer and said, yeah, I, we did that project. And it... Uh, it was a rooftop pool uh, with a lot in her edge, and it, it hung down into a living space. And because the property was a zero lot line, they weren't able to have windows in the bedroom on the top floor. And of course, being a spec house, um, the builder cut all kinds of corners. Sure. Um, they didn't, they had, uh, it was a steel infrastructure building. None of the steel I-beams had any insulation or anything sprayed on them, which were all it's supposed to have a, a like a polymer, like a truck bed liner sure. on them all. Well, the condensation in the walls, after a very short period of time, they had uh, the Venetian plaster started delaminating off the walls. They had mold inside. The steel I-beam structures were all rusted. It just in a very, very short period of time, just because of the condensation from the pool in that cavity around, you know, in the, the, in the crawl shell. space around the outside. So um, going in there and kind of deconstructing that and figuring out, you know, what they did, what we have to do to fix it, and it ended up being basically a tear out and rebuild. Um, so that one was kind of interesting because again, I, you know, I, it was in the plans, this is what you need to do. They didn't do it to save a few dollars. And of course it came back to bite them in the, in the back end. Um, I've got a project I'm doing right now in the Bay Area, which uh, the pool is actually uh, part of the foundation of the home. So we've got common walls, we've got steel, I-beam floor structures that are uh, literally welded to plates that we had embed into the pool wall. Um, so that one's been uh, been kind of a challenge because uh, I'm dealing with my subcontractors having interface with the general contractors, um, subcontractors, and you know trying to get everybody all on the same page. And um, so a lot of meetings, a lot of yeah. measuring, double checking, triple checking, um, kind of sometimes you get things out there in the field that they look good on paper and you get out there and you go, ah, man, this embed isn't going to quite fit where we've got it. The wall isn't thick enough. We don't have enough coverage. We, you know, we scramble, go back to the engineer and say, hey, we're going to have to change the thickness of the pool walls here because we just don't have the physical embed. And then he looks at a cross-section you right, know, of it, it out. in Revit and goes, nah, yeah, you're right. There's not enough, there's not enough meat. coverage on the meat right. on the back of that. So uh, sometimes some things slip through, but, uh, and it, you know, then the client comes out and goes, "Hey, wait a minute! That wall's thicker than <laughs> <laughs> thicker than I wanted it." <laughs> well, sometimes we've got to modify things to. Well, I think we bring up a little work. bit of a point as as we start getting into the engineering side of this. The team that has to come together, especially if we're if we're going to set say the house on top of the pool, we actually start ending up with maybe multiple structural engineers on a project, and so 
you, you also need to make sure you're working with engineers that one, will be willing to work with each other, and two, understand some of the nuances of each person's job. And, and pool engineering is, is, in general, is kind of its own little oddity for most engineers. Most structural engineers and architectural engineers don't have a sense of what pool engineering requirements are. And mostly it's not that they can't do the math, it's they don't understand like what kind of plumbing might be in the wall and they might show this huge embedded um, steel steel uh, embedded that's going to be in the way of all kinds of plumbing lines or vice versa. And so we, we find that too, that we've got to start that early with both engineers. If we're going to get, we get loading information from the architectural engineer to set on our structure, then we have to design our structure to take those loads. But now we're imparting some other things onto their structure and it's a back and forth kind of game, but there's a big team that gets put together when you do these structures. And it's not just a simple architect and just a pool guy. You know, you end up with architects, structural engineers, mechanical engineers, another structural engineer, because now the foundation of the pool or the pool is now the foundation of the house. Those two engineers now have to start talking. Um, and if you're lucky, everybody doesn't get too crazy conservative on you and make it cost you a million dollars, but the, you know, the, they have to really work well together and start seeing each other. And then ideally, like for us, we, we work almost always in Revit, try to miss as many of those problems as we can and try to make the Revit model as accurate as possible by when we have embed information from the structural, we actually model it and put it in the structure. Um, to try to solve us from running into those problems. We still, you're always gonna find some of those issues when you get to the site, but as many of those we can minimize, we can start to see that issue. And it really is super helpful on both sides, the, the builder side and the pool side. You know, one of the struggles that I find is that uh, oftentimes the homeowners or the, the, the project uh, manager is insisting that the home engineer who's designing the structure of the home and the foundations designs the pool. And it's, I, do you find it sometimes kind of difficult trying to explain to them that pools are kind of a different animal and there's some some limitations on some limitations on what we can do uh, which vary a little from cast concrete construction that they're used to especially bar bends and and the density of bars and walls and yeah I mean I think one of the things I think that they don't seem to understand either is we actually can run into some tolerances that they're not even willing to that they don't even deal with you know we've We've got a real long linear water feature we've done at the front of a house and it's 160 feet long and it's a perimeter overflow front and a lot in our back. Well, we can't manage any movement and we've had some movement on that project over time now. So and when you do with a building that size, if you had a quarter inch to three eighths to even a half inch of movement across the structure, that would be okay in general times usually and most of the building materials and structures can manage that. When we're dealing with a perimeter overflow pool structure, our ability to take any tolerance of movement is actually zero because right. we're, we're dealing with 16th and 32nd inch tolerances, which in the pool world is really a high, a high level of uh, accuracy. But when you're dealing with these kind of structures, you have to be there. And, and now you have to plan, how do we plan the structure and engineer it? And I don't, most home structural engineers will be looking at deflection and settlement issues much differently than maybe a pool engineer would. So even not just the nuances of the parts inside the pool, they're maybe not thinking of those kind of situations either. So our soils conditions have to be a little bit tighter or our structural support system has to be better and we have to be planning for that and they might not get that either. So it definitely is an education process from the pool guy. And, and the longer the edge, the longer the edge, the less tolerance there is for movement. Absolutely. So you have a, a smaller structure. If it moves a little bit, it's not quite so critical as something that's 200 feet long. Yeah. Well, especially if you want to not have to move too much water. Obviously, you can overcome some of that with water movement, right. but when you start getting long edges, then we're talking an excessive amount of water, an excessive amount of power, um, and, and not being responsible to the client. So um, those parts together, but it's, it's a big education piece, and, and that's why kind of building relationships with architects in town prior to even starting projects is, is important over time, because once they start understanding what you can provide to their, to their project, 
you get brought in sooner and sooner and then you guys start building better projects together and you're not catching up at the end and, and we often are still we often get called in too late and we're catching up and we have to do trick trickery to the eye to make it look as though those things are happening but I think uh, you know that as early as you can get in and as fast as you can work and, and hiring the right person and, and the other thing I always you know one thing I've told even my local pool builders that I've done work for we, we design for other pool builders in my market and I you know sometimes they get these opportunities to work on these pools and they take it um, and they should I don't have a problem with them taking the project but they also got to recognize when it's outside their wheelhouse and say I'm gonna take the project with builder a because he's my builder don't be afraid to go hire uh, Paulo Benedetti to design for you because he's not going to steal the project from you. even I in my own market we do it all the time we design a pool somebody else's building because we have some expertise they don't have there's nothing wrong with with partnering together with a local pool builder and and hiring somebody like Red Rock contractors to come in and help you design something especially if we have the expertise um, we have no we have no reason to want to take that project off your hands we want to help you build that project because you'll probably bring me more right exactly um, and that's what we same thing is we're a general contractor so sometimes we get that weird crossover too where they're like well I don't know if I want you working on my job you're like well I'm not gonna steal your client right. I'm gonna help you build this one because I want to build the next 10 right um, and so so for pool builders out there that maybe don't have the expertise on these items don't pass the project don't don't run from it but in, enlist the help of a professional engineer. And if you're afraid of one in your own market, you know, like David Peterson's in California, we, and you can be in Florida. And, and reach out. Reach yeah. out. They'll, I, do, they'll, I do the same thing. Yeah. I, I've got projects in the, in the Midwest right now that we're doing in Oklahoma and in Tennessee. And, um, no, I'm not stealing those. Uh, I'm not going to steal their projects. But right. it's allowing them to, to take on bigger contracts that are outside, you know, outside their wheelhouse, yet... Um, they know that they've got that resource, somebody they can call up even during construction and say, hey, I ran into this little thing, how do I do this? Or, right. hey, we've got all of our steel and our plumbing in, we review our photos, and I can go through and mark up stuff on an iPad and say, hey, you need to fix this and this and this and this. Um, Absolutely, you know, I think that they, they, they would get, it, it allows you to take on some projects you couldn't do and really minimize your risk, right? We've, we've, we've paid for the, either the education or the hard knock side of making mistakes. Right. And, and that can work across the board, whether you're hiring somebody that like a Genesis guy or even some, if you've seen somebody else that's built a project that you're trying to do a construction project, like reach out, talk to them. I bet you they're, they're more than willing to tell you the, the nightmare stories of what they right. didn't do right. And, and you can really help yourself do those kind of projects and help the overall team get it done right whether you bring somebody in or not and you know it, people i know are sometimes apprehensive about spending that money on a consultant or paying somebody a little bit for that knowledge but i'll tell you what on the back side going in and doing that rework and demolition is going to be much more expensive and not only in in the actual cost to to remediate the problem but you've lost that customer goodwill right. that customer goes you know what the hell did i hire this guy for he's in here having to demolition things and chase leaks and Yep. and fix things and go you've lost that referral or those four or five potential projects that could have came out of that absolutely i hope you enjoyed our podcast on nas the maskers i'm rick chafee with red rock contractors and i'm paulo benedetti with aquatic technology until we see you again thanks for listening to the ask the masters podcast and don't forget to check out our facebook page each week on tuesdays for new episodes of the show I also want to encourage you to stop by the Ask the Masters Facebook page and invite other like-minded individuals to join us there as well. Feel free to jump into the conversations and even post your own questions. We want to create a community which fosters learning and discovery for the betterment of us all. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please be sure to subscribe and feel free to share. 